This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. All right, so we are in Acts 16. We're going to read 16 through 24. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Morning, Redemption. Morning. How are you? Okay. He's amazing. One of you is amazing. The rest of you are okay. That's all right. Um, hope you had a great week. It's good to see you all again from this spot. First time ever. I've done two weeks in a row. So thanks for coming back. I didn't scare you off. Um, if you have been following us uh, through the book of Acts, you may have noticed that we just so happened to skip over a section. Maybe like, what happened to verses 1 through 15 in Acts 16? Do they not believe in that part of the Bible anymore? No, uh, the truth is Amy, Jamie lost his voice last week, and so that messed with the whole calendar. So if you're really interested in what happens in Acts 16, 1 through 15, um, you can just go ahead and read it. That's fine. Uh, don't do a long preaching, please. And uh, Or you can just come back um, next week, and Jamie will fill you in, and we'll go pick that up, and then we'll continue. So Sorry for any confusion there. But we're picking up in Acts 16, verse 16 today. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it'll be good. So I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up um, like neck deep in Christian culture, Christian world, going to the Christian bookstores, Christian music concerts, uh, Veggie Tales, the whole thing. I've done it all. Uh, and that was my world. And I remember as a kid, very distinctly, uh, there seemed to be this... Um, overwhelming fear among the adults that somehow us youths would get sucked into the occult or like somehow end up worshiping Satan or become witches, something like that. And so uh, we were on the lookout all the time everywhere of potential ways for us to get sucked into the occult. Uh, I distinctly remember sitting in a class and learning that we shouldn't listen to ACDC because it stands for After Christ, Devil Comes. Uh, or KISS stands for Knights in Satan's Service. And so I wasn't allowed to listen to those things. Um, Dungeons and Dragons, Off Limits. Uh, Smurfs, for sure no. And Trolls. Uh, I mean, and then just let's go on and on and on. 
Now, I'm not saying at all that there isn't um, discernment and discretion that parents should have in what their kids take in from pop culture. You as parents should have discernment. And maybe some of these things we shouldn't have taken in. I mean, I've, as an adult, I've seen ACDC album covers, and I'm like, I could see how they probably got where they got. It makes sense. Uh, but overall, right, like, there's just this fear. It was like there was a, a demon or a Satan was hiding behind every rock and every tree, and you got to look out because if you're not careful, you're going to get sucked in. And, and we, were, we were scared because it's dangerous. And I think over the years I've seen as I've gotten older that maybe we've pendulum swung a little too far the other direction. Because I see in Christianity very little talk about Satan and spiritual forces. Interestingly enough, as Christianity seems to want to downplay the spiritual realm, don't want to talk about angels and demons and Satan, do you know that paganism is making a comeback in America? Significant comebacks. You guys know what I mean by paganism, right? Paganism, if you're not familiar, is kind of a blanket term that we use for all these really polytheistic type religions. So uh, Druidism, Wiccan, um, believe it or not, uh, Egyptian gods are making a comeback. People worshiping these and participating in these spiritual dark arts type practices. It's, it's growing huge. In fact, a study was done eight years ago. Um, uh, I think it was just a Pew Research study that found that there are 0.4% of our population now claim to be Wiccan. And you're like, 0.4%, that's not very large. Do you know what else is 0.4%? The Presbyterian Church in America. Seventh-day Adventists, 0.4% of our population. You guys know any of those people? Therefore, there's a good chance you probably know somebody who is Wiccan. And that was eight years ago. Barnes and Noble, Walmart. You can buy tarot cards from Barnes and Noble and Walmart. I was there the other day, saw it. Amazon carries pagan worship ritual tools. You can order them from Amazon. Be here tomorrow if you have Prime. Don't do it. It's huge and it's growing. So as the world is becoming, we say, more secular, it's actually becoming more religious. As they see that, man, this... this thing that's being offered to us of just, oh, it's all science, only what you see. They're realizing that there's something more. There is a spiritual realm. And at the same time, Christianity is like, what? Satan? Who's he? Non-Christians are waking up to the reality that there is an unseen realm. And we're often lagging behind and acknowledging what our Bible teaches. That there is a spiritual reality. And the default worldview throughout world history, the default worldview in Christianity has always been there's an unseen realm and we have an enemy. See, the spiritual realm is real. Satan's, demons, rulers and authorities in heavenly places are real. And Satan desires nothing more than to stop the spread of the gospel. And as we've been working through the book of Acts, we've been able to trace this exciting movement in the early church of the gospel spreading across the globe to every tribe, nation, and tongue. But if you've been paying close attention, there's this subtext going on. These little incidences keep popping up of this spiritual battle that's been going on. 
as, as God goes forward with his mission, the forces of darkness are working hard to stop it. And we find today in our text another one of those instances where it pops up. See, Paul wanders into the city of Philippi. And Philippi is a very Roman and a very pagan city. It's so pagan that they can't even have a synagogue. Do you know how many men, Jewish men, there needs to be for there to be a synagogue in any city? Ten. This city is so pagan, they can't even find ten monotheistic believers in Yahweh to form a synagogue. And Paul says, I'm going there. And he wanders into this pagan city full of sorcery and idol worship. And as we just heard, fortune telling. So this morning, I want us to look at that. I want us to see how the enemy of God works to oppose God's mission and how we should respond. So our big idea this morning is real simple. It's just know your enemy. And if you're in my small group, that's for you. I got teased this week for my big ideas being too big. So three words, guys, just three. Know your enemy. But this morning, we're going to look at four truths you need to know about your enemy. Four truths you need to know about your enemy from our text this morning. The first truth we're going to look at is this, the presence of the enemy, the presence of the enemy. We're going to pick up again in verse 16. Let your eyes fall down. Verse 16, we're going to read it again as we were going to the place of prayer. Let me pause there. You see, we have a pronoun change in our text. We're using the word we now. That's because the author of this text, Luke, has now joined Paul in his missionary journey. That's why he's using we. So now Paul is writing from an actual eyewitness account. And he says, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. See, Paul and Silas are just wandering into the city on their way to a prayer meeting. They're going to pray. They weren't looking for a fight. They weren't looking to battle, but but the spiritual war, the spiritual battle came upon them. It found them. And how did it find them? It found them through this spirit of divination, through a slave girl. I want us to look closer at this enemy because it's interesting. See, this spirit of divination says, uh, it clarifies for us at the end of verse 16, uh, Luke clarifies that spirit was, gave this girl the ability of fortune-telling. And apparently she was really good at it. If she wasn't good at it, she wouldn't have made these people a lot of money. They were very wealthy because of her abilities. Now, I don't know if these were vague, like, horoscope-type predictions, like you read, you know, Aquarius, you're going to have great trouble this week. Oh, I had trouble. I must have been right. I don't know if it's that type of prediction. But either way, whatever the predictions were, they were very compelling because people kept paying her to tell more. But Paul gets in this demon's crosshairs. And for days she follows him, shouting, These men are of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. See, this demonic spirit is clearly aware of who Paul is and the message that he's bringing. So what she says isn't wrong, is it? 
That's, that's a true statement. But for some reason, this is problematic for Paul. We're going to get to that in a minute. But I wanted to notice here, the first point is that there is an enemy. He has forces arrayed with him against God, and he is present and active. Look, it's just the reality we have to be aware of. We have to open our eyes to the fact that there is a spiritual realm with enemies. But in the midst of all this, to understand, we need to define who our enemy is and who our enemy is not. Because it's very easy in all this to like, okay, enemies, battles. I mean, we live in a world of conflict all the time. So, so who are we talking about? Let's go to Ephesians 6.12. Ephesians 6.12 says this. Let's start with who our enemy is not. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's how Paul starts this. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So if that's true, let me tell you who your enemy is not. Your enemy is not your neighbor. Both your literal neighbor and your figurative neighbor. Not the guy down the street who got busted three weeks ago for trafficking drugs. And your kids woke up at 6 a.m. because the cop showed up and busted down the door. When I say you, I mean me. This guy woke up, me and my kid, in the middle at 6 a.m. in the morning for dealing drugs and the huge drug bust. It was wild. You can look it up online. But he's not my enemy because I don't battle against flesh and blood. Your coworker's not your enemy, no matter how annoying the clicking of the pen is. Your political opponents are not your enemy. A leader of the church that you disagree with theologically is not your enemy. Are some of these people mistaken, misunderstanding scripture? Are some of these people lost in need of a savior? Are some of these people more wicked than others from a human perspective? Absolutely. But are they your enemies? They're not. Because we don't battle against flesh and blood. Thankfully, the Bible tells us who our enemy is. And throughout church history, most theologians have kind of summed up the, the enemies and the battles that Christians face in three categories. I'll give them to you now. You guys can write these down. These are good to remember. The first one, the first enemy is your flesh. And what I mean by flesh, Paul uses this term a lot in his letters. He talks about the flesh. I'll sum up all the kind of his teachings this way. Your flesh is basically that propensity you find in yourself to to be selfish and self-centered you know like that like you know you want to do things for other people but there's that war that happens inside and you find yourself desiring to do something you don't want to do even though you know you shouldn't paul calls that the flesh and that's something that you're going to battle until you're with jesus or he returns the second the bible talks about is the world i define the world this way from john first john two sixteen, where John says the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And that's basically like the system of the world, not, not individuals. It's, it's that tendency that you see in all cultures to kind of veer away from God, not toward God. And kind of pulls people into this system of it's all about desiring those, um, fulfilling those lustful desires. That's the world. And then the last... <coughs> is the devil and all his followers. Back to Ephesians 6, 12. 
This is what Paul is talking about. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but here it is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But man, it's hard to remember that, isn't it? It's hard to wake up every day and remember we live in a spiritual battle. And I think sometimes we do that because we, we intentionally downplay it. And I think it's, it's good in the sense that we don't want to have that, like, the devil made me do it attitude. You know, like, it's not my fault. I think we also are very well of our own tendency to sin, our own propensity to do things we shouldn't. And so we, we downplay, ah, oh, it's not the devil. And, and we know man's hearts. Like, humans are just, we're, we're messed up people. We can do really wicked things. But I also think we've been trained from, for years just living in a very Western, modern, industrial culture to, down, to, to almost think that like, it's silly. Like, isn't it silly to believe in the devil? It's like people who believe in fairies. Like, really? Aren't we more enlightened than that? Aren't we more mature than that? Haven't we moved beyond that? But we're called, commanded to watch, to identify, to be aware that this is real. In fact, 1 Peter 5.8, Peter says this, be sober-minded. Here it is, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So how can we be watchful then? We're called to it. Where do we see him work? How can we be on the lookout? If this enemy is real, if he's present, he's prowling, what do we look for? I'm going to give you five things to look for real quick to, to see his presence. The first is this, truth that is manipulated to a godless advantage. That's what happened here. The demon, through this girl, is preaching something that's true. She's following around saying something true. But this demon is no friend of the church. He has ulterior motives. You even saw this with Satan in, in the desert. When Satan tempted Jesus in the desert, do you know what he did? He quoted scripture. He knows the Bible better than you do. Guarantee it, because he's had thousands of years to read it. And he's going to use it. You need to look for darkness disguised as light. The Bible actually teaches us that, that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Meaning that evil doesn't always look evil at first glance. Now, it doesn't mean I want you walking around being cynical and suspicious of everything, but it means you need to be aware. You need to watch for spiritual blindness. See, people can't see, not unbelievers can't see the obvious truths of Scripture. And part of it is because they're spiritually dead. The Bible tells us that if you don't know Christ, you're spiritually dead. You can't respond to the Word of God until you're made alive. But the Bible also tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that, I'll just read it for you, Paul says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of the unbelievers. So a part of the reason that unbelievers can't understand the word of God is because they've been blinded. And Paul says, God of this world, he's referring to Satan. 
Four, you need to watch for the accusing of Christians. Revelation 12.10 calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. Even though God has declared his children righteous through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Satan still goes around accusing Christians. The last is deception. I think that just kind of sums up everything he does. He is the great deceiver. So I have to ask you this morning, church, are, are you properly identifying your enemy? As we have an enemy, the Bible clearly defines who that is. And guess who it's not? It's not the person you don't like very much. And are you regularly aware that your enemy is battling against you? You are at war. We are at war every single day. The first thing we need to know about our enemy is his presence. The second is this, is the powerlessness of the enemy, the powerlessness of the enemy. Let's look back at our text beginning uh, in verse 18. Let's pick it up there. In this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, I want to deal with two potentially distracting questions that come out from this, uh, this little instance here and kind of get them out of the way because there are probably questions you've had because there are questions that I had and I don't think I'm that different. Maybe I am. And you're like, you're weird, Drew. So um, either way, just entertain me for a second. Uh, first is this. Why was she following Paul around? Like, really, what, what did Paul have to do with anything? Why would this girl follow him for days on end? And so I did a bunch of study, read commentaries, studied it myself, did a lot of research, and the consensus is this. We don't know. Sorry. Luke doesn't tell us. We don't have no idea why she was following around, and, and it's okay. Like, if, if it was important, he would have told us. So we don't know. So I'm sorry, slash not sorry. The second question, why did Paul get annoyed with a message that was clearly true, right? The demon was saying true things. This girl said something that we would all affirm. Yes, that is good. And, and you're like, well, yeah, but, uh, you know, Paul was annoyed, but didn't he say in... Uh, you know, that other letter where people were, you know, preaching the gospel and they were doing it because they knew it would cause Paul more persecution. And he's like, yeah, but as long as the gospel is preached, I don't care what their motives are. You guys remember that? Like, what's, how's that different than here? And I'll tell you, it was different because the messenger matters. This was a demon, an enemy of God in a pagan city. But people knew this girl was a fortune teller, that she was, these people were worshiping other gods. And Paul was like, there is no way that I'm going to be associated with any of that. The God that we worship, the message we're preaching, it does not need to be testified or witnessed to by demons. That's why. So those questions, got those out of the way. I want us to focus on particularly, though, the powerlessness of the enemy. Why do I say that? Why is the enemy powerless? Well, in the story, this girl's walking around, follow, Paul's 
you know, getting annoyed. I love that. I love that's how the, the translators translated this. Like, he's just annoyed. What a great word. Like, okay, okay, I've had enough. And so what does he do? He gets super annoyed. He's had enough with this girl for days on end. And he turns around and he says, get out. In the name of Jesus Christ, be gone. And what, is the, what does the demon do? Leaves immediately. We talked about this before, right? How, how powerful this demon was. This isn't some like light, fluffy, you know, ghost in some house that's going to scare you at night with creaky boards. This demon had the ability to predict the future, whether he could actually predict the future or had the ability to influence events enough to make it seem like he predicted the future. That's some powerful stuff. In the name of Jesus Christ, boom, obeys and is gone. And you don't think this girl wanted to get rid of this demon for years? But before the name of Jesus Christ, it could not stand. That is powerlessness. I want you to know that we're not talking about some special incantation here. That would be stooping to the same level as every other person and every other way they dealt with deities in that nation. That if I just say these magical words, then I can manipulate the God to do exactly what it is that I want. No, you don't manipulate the God of the universe to do what you want. That's not what Paul's doing here. He's saying, in the name and the authority of Jesus Christ, it is his power that's casting her out. Isn't Paul using special words to get what he wants? There's powerlessness. I want you to think for a moment, back in like, your childhood, and even just the past couple of years, like images, if I say the word like Satan or the devil, like those types of images that pop into your head. You all got a picture in your head? My guess is it's probably something maybe from like Looney Tunes where he's got little horns, this tail, little pitchfork dancing around in a leotard or something, right? Like that's a very common image we see of Satan. Maybe you saw it in like some dumb horror movie that like he's all red and dark, and, and we, you ever wonder where that image comes from? Because if we're honest, like, it's kind of a silly picture of Satan, isn't it? Like, if, you're, if we're real honest, it's not that scary. It's actually stupid. Where does that come from? I'll tell you where it comes from, since I'm asking the question. I probably should know. Um, it actually comes from church history, all the way back in the Middle Ages. See, back in the Middle Ages, most people couldn't read or write. They were illiterate. But theologians back then knew their Bible, Artists knew their Bible, and they were, knew that Satan fell because of his pride. And he'd been defeated at the cross and resurrection. But the reason he fell from being an angel of light to an angel of darkness was because of his pride, because he wanted to be like God. And they thought to themselves, man, we gotta, if we're going to fight Satan, we need to attack him at his weakest point. And his weakest point was pride. What's the best way to bring proud people down? make fun of them. So all these images that you see of Satan that are real silly, like those are just ridiculous. That's intentional. They were done that way to mock Satan because he had been defeated, because he was powerless. There was nothing to fear. This was joking. This was mockery. Satan lost to Christ. He is powerless. His future destruction is sure. Because Christ defeated Satan at the cross. 
See, death was a weapon that Satan yielded very well, and he held it over people, and he would use it. Shame and condemnation are weapons he used to beat people down, but at the cross of Christ, those weapons were made inoperable. Jesus, as the Son of God, has all power and authority to judge, and he now judges us as righteous, justified, so Satan can't hold death and shame over you any longer because you've been forgiven. And this is the power and authority of Christ. So any demon, principality, power, ruler, or Satan himself must fall before Christ. When he says, be gone, they have to obey. He is the son of God. And guess what? This victory that Christ has is now yours too, in him. So church this morning, with that truth, I want to say to you, do not fear. Do not fear. The battle has been won. I also want to say, don't let your guard down. Do not fear, but don't let your guard down. Because the scriptures telling, tells us, we just read this in Peter, that Satan walks around like a roaring lion. He's still active. Just because he's powerless before Christ doesn't mean he's not dangerous. So you need to be watchful. Be on the lookout. He's moving. He's working. The battle's not over. Put on your armor. Paul tells us this in Ephesians 6. I encourage you to read that. That's another sermon for another day. So we have the presence of the enemy, the powerlessness of the enemy, and now the pathway of the enemy. Let's keep reading. Verse 19 says this, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. So the girl's slave owners, this girl gets exercised, right? Her demon is cast out, and they lose their income stream. <laughs> she can't make predictions anymore. There's no fortune telling going on. So they have no cash flow and they are ticked. They were angry because their love of money and their hope of all their hopes, all their dreams of being wealthy were gone. And what's interesting though is what they accuse Paul and Silas of. Did you see that? Look at verse 21. They didn't accuse Paul and Silas, they didn't drag them before the magistrates, the, the rulers of that city, and say, hey, these guys ruined our income stream. Look at what they said. It says they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Wait a second. How did that happen? That's not what happened. Because it wasn't just a financial issue for them. It was deeper than that. What they're saying is these men don't belong here. We don't want their kind around these parts. What you see in this text is what I'm calling the pathway of the enemy. This is the pathway. This is what it looks like. As John Calvin used to say, and it's quoted often here, even at Redemption, men's hearts are idol factories. You see that 
there in verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. And the key word there is hope. It was that desire, that longing. They wanted more money. That's where all their hope was, was in wealth. It was an idol for them. And this is the way idols work. Idols are built around our hopes. It was back then, it is today. They've always been tied to people's desires and the things they long for. In ancient times, it would have been for a good crop yield or for victory over our enemies or for children, for our lineage to perpetuate and go on. And so they would worship these idols and make sacrifice idols and hopes and put all their hope in those deities to help them achieve these things they wanted. But we don't do that anymore today, do we? We don't have idols. Or do we? Idols of wealth and sex and power and control run rampant in our culture. Men's hearts are idol factories. And the enemy preys upon man's idols. Let me say, well, Drew, what do idols have to do with our enemy? And it's, I mean, the demon's been cast out. What are you talking about here? Listen, the, the enemy knows the hearts of man and he takes advantage of it. In fact, Paul identifies idols as being directly tied to our enemy. In 1 Corinthians 10, 19, the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 10 is about this long discussion about uh, should we eat meat that's sacrificed to idols or not, and how does that work among Christians? But what's interesting is what he does here at the end of that argument. He says, what do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? Look what he does in verse 20. He says, no, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer, does he say to idols? He says to demons, and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons See, Paul was aware behind all the idols that we have is a spiritual realm, spiritual forces taking advantage of the natural tendency of man's heart to rebel against God, to pursue everything else but God, and he takes advantage of that and twists it and manipulates it. And then he uses the sinful anchor of man to destroy See, Paul and Silas became barriers to their heart idols. And so they must be removed. This happens in our culture all over the place. Just two quick examples that you're familiar with. First one's kind of low-hanging fruit, but it's just so obvious. is the porn industry. See, our hearts are lustful. Human hearts are lustful. We desire pleasure so much. And Satan takes advantage of that weakness, of that natural tendency. And you better believe there are demonic forces propping up the porn industry. Absolutely. This might hit even a little closer to home for many of us. Our culture's love of stuff or consumerism. See, our hearts long for, we talk about this often here as well, long for comfort, security, for pleasure, for the adoration of man. And, and we have a, a Target full of stuff. We have a Costco full of stuff. Pick your 
shopping center of choice, Amazon, full of stuff. And if you just get this stuff, it's going to satisfy those things. It's idolatry. And you better believe that behind every marketing company, behind every little ad that you see on TV are demonic forces trying to turn people's eyes and hearts away from the beauty of the Lord into this lesser beauty of stuff. And I'm not saying marketing teams are demonic or evil. I have friends who work on marketing teams who are Christians, okay? So I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is there are demonic forces and your enemy knows your heart's desire to want something other than God and will take advantage of all that. See, Satan takes what God has created that's good and he twists it and uses it. Satan was created as the most beautiful of all angels. Now he's the most ugly. So church, I want you to recognize the idolatry in our culture and in your own life. It's there. And I want you to understand that your neighbors will never find what they're looking for from those idols. And I don't just mean the neighbor down the street. I mean all the people in your lives. And I want you to have compassion on your neighbors who are pursuing idols and being manipulated by the enemy. Because again, your neighbors aren't your enemies. We're not fighting a battle for our cultural preferences or our ideologies. And if we focus so much on fighting the wrong battle... We're wasting our time because our first desire should be for the lost to know Christ Jesus and him crucified and spend eternity with him. That should be our first desire. That's the battle that we're fighting is for the souls of men who are on their way to hell. And if your desire to see people come to know Christ is just so you can have your culture back, then you don't love them, you love you. Our battle is a spiritual battle. People are dying spiritually every day. And we have an enemy who doesn't give a rip. He is so excited that you don't care. That's why these next two things are so important. You need to call your neighbors to repent from pursuing false idols. I don't mean that confrontational repent. I mean the repent in the literal sense of the term, term which is like, turn, you're facing this way. No, turn around. Those idols are going to kill you. Your satisfaction, what you're looking for, can only be found in Christ. Turn, repent. Christ is the answer to their heart's desires. Show your neighbors. Tell them. They're blinded by the enemy, and you can show them the light. We have the presence of the enemy, the powerlessness of the enemy, the pathway of the enemy, the last, the persecution of the enemy. Verse 23, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. I want you to imagine this scene with me for a moment. 
and see the injustice that just happened. They freed a girl from slavery. They removed wickedness from the city. And what was the consequence? What did they receive? Not celebration, not cheers, not high fives, not congratulations. They received hostility. And they were persecuted for their faith. And I know we talk about persecution a lot here at Redemption. If you've been with us for a while, you know that we've talked about it in 1 Peter. We talked about it in Hebrews. Now we're talking about it in Acts. And the reason we talk about it a lot is because it's in the Bible a lot. But I don't want you to check out because this is a common thing we talk about. I want you to listen because there's something important to see in this text. But you can look at this text and be like, well, Drew, you're talking about this enemy. This enemy, just flipped the enemy on me? Because the persecution was being done at the hands of these civic leaders, of these magistrates. Remember, he cast the demon out. And I would say, yes, but what started it all? It was a consequence of what? Spiritual warfare. And Paul and Silas leaned into that. They didn't fight back because they knew where the battle really was. But we need to have a right perspective on persecution. We've been defining terms this morning, neighbors, paganism, enemies. I want to define persecution because let's be honest, Americans, sometimes we have a, American Christians, um, we have what I call a persecution complex. Uh, we're not persecuted, guys. If you want to know persecution, just go to the Voice of the Martyrs website. You'll learn. See, because persecution is not having certain American rights threatened. And I love my American rights. They're great. I'm a big fan of America. You cut me, I bleed apple pie, okay? Love America. But having your rights threatened isn't persecution. Having gender-neutral bathrooms isn't persecution. Being asked to call somebody by their preferred pronoun isn't persecution. And I'm not saying I agree with any of those things. I'm not saying there aren't times where we should speak up and stand up for certain things. What I'm saying is that's not persecution. This is persecution. Death threats. Not being able to make a living because you claim Christ. Having to hide your Bibles, being shunned by your family, having your children taken away because you claim Christ. That's persecution. And it happens across this world every day. And I'm not saying it won't happen here. It could, it could not. I don't know the future. But your enemy wants it to happen because he wants to stop the gospel. So recognize the forces behind your persecution. I'm not saying it doesn't mean those persecutors are guilty for their decisions. They are equally as guilty. It's not one or the other, it's both. But recognize that before Christ saved you, you also were an enemy of God and just as guilty. All your lost neighbors, all your lost friends, Scripture tells us, are enemies of God. And so were each one of us. This next one can be particularly hard. But this is what Jesus tells us to do, is to bless and pray for your persecutors. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. 
And you'll learn in a few weeks as we continue on this story what happens when you respond to persecution that way. Some really cool stuff can happen. Really cool stuff. Go ahead, read it again this week. You want to sneak ahead and get a sneak peek. That's fine. It's a great story. The last, I want you to remember Romans 8, 31 through 39. In fact, why don't you turn your Bibles there quickly. I'm going a little long. Hopefully that's okay. I'm not going to stop, so... <clears throat> 31 says this, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, the reality, church, is we are living in the already and the not yet. The war was won by Christ on the cross, but a battle rages on. Your enemy is still at large, prowling around, and we need to know that he is present. We need to know and remember that he is powerless. We need to know the paths he takes to seek, to kill, to destroy. We need to know this tactics behind persecution, but most of all, we need to know that we are on the winning team. Christ has won the victory. One of my favorite teachers, his name's Andrew Fellows. He teaches at the Round Church in uh, Cambridge, UK. Tells a story about a friend of his who wasn't a believer and was complaining about the Bible and making accusations against the Bible. And um, finally he was like, why don't you just read it? Then we can come have a conversation. His friend's like, all right, fine, I'll do that. I'll read the Bible. So his friend goes and reads the Bible. And sometime later, they come back and they're chatting again. His friend's like, oh yeah, I uh, read the Bible. You know, he told me to read. And he's like, oh, really? Cool. Well, what'd you decide to read? You know, it's a big book. He's like, oh, you know, um, yeah, I decided to read that uh, book. What's it called? Uh, Revelation. Oh, man. <laughs> he's like, oh, goodness, I'm so sorry. I should have given you some direction. You know, that book, of all the books, that's like probably the hardest. He's like, you know, theologians de debated for centuries over the meaning of that book. Christians still disagree. That's such a hard one to understand. I'm sorry. I should give you direction. He's like, what do you mean it's so hard to understand? Uh, you read it, right? He's like, oh, it's super easy. He's like, basically it just says in the end, you guys win. <laughs> and he's like, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Church, in the end, we win. Because Christ is won. Christ is coming back. And one day he will vanquish all evil for all eternity. Satan and everything that he is for, all his demons, all 
Evil authorities, rulers, principalities, powers, anybody who doesn't know Christ will be cast into the lake of fire. There will be no more tears. It all accomplishes because of what Christ has done. So if you've placed your faith in him, you say, I believe Jesus rose from the dead for my sin. I was an enemy of God, but I believe he's forgiven me. Then you will be part of that victory that Christ has accomplished for you. We have hope. Christ is one, and you are on the winning team. He gets the glory, and that's what we look forward to, and that's what we preach. And may we hold on and fight back against the enemy because the battle has already been won for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he has won the victory. God, and we need to be aware and awake to the reality that there is a spiritual battle going on around us all the time. We have friends, family, loved ones who are under attack, who are destined to spend eternity away from you, and we don't want that. So God, use us to share the good news that victory is available in Christ, that he has defeated death, he's forgiven sin, that hope and joy for all eternity are available in you. Help us to not be ashamed to stand strong. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you, Redemption, you are loved.